Welcome to Theology Unleashed. I'm Arjuna, and this is the channel where Eastern theology meets Western skepticism. Today, I've got a special guest, doc, uh, Dr. Howard Resnick, also known as Fridayananda Daskoswami. And today, we're going to be talking about Vedic economics. So a quick bio about Dr. Howard Resnick. He's been a spiritual leader in a worldwide bhakti yoga community for over 50 years. He holds a PhD in Sanskrit and Indian studies from Harvard University. Has published in many academic has published many academic books and articles, including several publications with Harvard University, and has lectured around the world on the philosophies of the sacred traditions of India. He has also established bhakti yoga communities in many countries, and he's also currently working on a translation of the Mahabharata, something of a critical edition, and has recently published a novel. Uh, so, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you. Sorry about the technical delay. Vedic economics. Uh, what? Let's start by discussing why we should care about that. So, Dr. Resnick, could you tell us a little bit about Vedic? What do we mean? First of all, what do we mean by Vedic society and Vedic culture? Actually, I would like to start with what we mean by economics. Okay. So, so what do we mean by economics? Let me get a. a I've got a got quote from here. the branch of knowledge concerned with the production, consumption, and transfer of wealth. So we have certain basic needs. We need to eat, we need shelter, uh, and we need, uh, you know, we just need, we need clothes. And unfortunately in this world, some people need weapons. And so how you get those things, how you trade for them, how you sell them to other people, that's economics. And so I mentioned that because, as far as I can see, economics is just a universal uh, thing that people have to do if they want to survive. You know, communities that are suicidal don't have to worry about economics. But if a community or an individual want to survive, they have to be concerned with economics in that sense. So if we talk about Vedic, Vedic, of course, is an adjective coming from the Sanskrit word Veda, which means knowledge. It refers to a, a large body of sacred literature, which gives uh, theology, philosophy, all kinds of sciences, and uh, describes how societies satisfy their basic needs economically. So, um, I think, um, I would say from the Vedic point of view, an economy to be successful has to fulfill or has to have two qualities. Uh, number one, it, it has to be efficient. It has to actually work. It can't be like the old saying, the operation was a success, but the patient died. So in other words, if, a, if an economy works, people have something like prosperity, they have lots of healthy food, they have shelter, they basically have what they need materially to live a happy life. And, you know, assuming we're not talking about people who are inordinately greedy or manic, but just so that normal people can have what they need and live comfortably. So, um, so an economy must be efficient. It, mu it must actually work and provide those things. 
And also, uh, it has to be ethical. In other words, one way to build your economy is to kill lots of other people and steal all their wealth. And that would that is an economic strategy. Technically, it's just not a very ethical one. So uh, here's a question from Claire. How would Vedic economics work better than a capitalist or communist economy? Um, I think it's important to understand that Vedic economics, if we you know, want to use that term, which is not a term we find in the Vedas, but if we want to use that term, uh, it's not an economic theory. It's, it's more of, um, for example, if, if we look at books like Mahabharata or Bhagavatam, and I mentioned those two ancient Sanskrit texts because they're big books and therefore we get a, and they talk about daily life. And so we get a, a sustained view of how people actually lived back then. And, and the first thing, the first extremely important economic fact is that it was an agrarian society. It was not industrial. It was not, I mean, most people lived off agriculture, although you could say two kinds of people were hunters and gatherers. Well, not, let's say gatherers, not hunters, but you have people who hunt and gather things, sort of primitive, econ e primitive economy, just because they're considered to be semi-uncivilized. Living by killing other creatures is not something that was greatly appreciated uh, and ethically, and simply gleaning nuts or berries or taking leaves. It was, most people lived off agriculture and they had sumptuous food and so on. So there's one class which is considered very simple, even at times primitive, that live, let's say in the forest, live by hunting and gathering. But there's another class that lives in the forest and doesn't hunt, but does live by gathering. And those are sages, yogis. So in a sense, you get these two groups that are kind of at extremes. One, because they're sort of outside the purview of what would be considered normal civilized life, living in communities, following certain ethical principles. So they live by hunting. Another group that lives outside the cities and sort of in the wilderness of the forest, they're yogis. And they have their own, you could say, yoga economy. They live very simply. They perform austerities. They almost invariably will live by a river. So they get drinking water. They can bathe. They can do ritual ablutions. If you look at Europe, for example, or anywhere in the world, all the great ancient cities, almost all of them were built at, at the sides of rivers because rivers are such an important part uh, of economics for trade and for uh, just for living. Because, you know, part of economy is water. I mean, that's one of the basic items you need is water for various reasons. So if we look at most people in the Vedic culture, uh, they lived in villages, not cities. Uh, they, the villages were based on some form of agriculture and, uh, or cow protection, raising dairy products. And that was the economy. It was a simple but sumptuous economy. It's well known that India 
perhaps of all countries in the world had the richest endowment, natural endowment of jewels and other, and you know, precious stones, metals, and it and all kinds of things. So India was a very rich country. In fact, up until you know several hundred years ago, it had most of the wealth of the world in terms of things that people considered valuable and an unlimited supply of food. Since in India, you find basically every possible climate from the hottest jungles to the coldest mountains. And you find deserts, you find, I mean, basically everything. So India always produced a great amount of food and, and other precious items. Uh, it always had a large prosperous population until it was kind of decimated by colonialism, first Muslim and then European. But in any case, as far as comparing economics, uh, is Vedic economics really voodoo economics? Wow. Claire is really sending those questions in. Okay, let's get to Claire's questions. Does Vedic economics approve of usury? She's good. She's really, uh, okay. See if we can deal with all this. <laughs> first, first, those, first explain what usury is. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll read from the dictionary. Usury is the e illegal action or practice of lending money at unreasonably high rates of interest. So usury basically is exploitative money lending. So it's not any kind of money lending. Yes, it's exploitative, gouging people. I and, and we don't really hear about that. We don't really hear about, well, first of all, it's, it's not a society that used money a lot. I mean, it was more of a barter system. So if you, now, when we talk about Vedic culture, uh, first of all, you could question whether there even is such a thing as Vedic economics. For example, if you look at India, South Asia, at the time of Lord Chaitanya, you find a very different culture than you find at the time of Krishna. And if you look in books like Mahabharata and Bhagavatam, you find different socioeconomic systems going further back. In fact, there's the system of four great ages called yugas. And what we find is the economics and the, and the social configuration is different in every yuga. So, for example, in Satya Yuga, um, the weeds are nutritious food. You know, nutritious food literally grows like weeds. So, therefore, people don't, and people are austere. They practice yoga, so there's hardly a need for agriculture. In fact, the Bhagavatam says that agriculture was introduced by Prithu Maharaj, sort of systematic uh, terracing of land and agriculture. And so um, I'm not sure there is such a thing as Vedic economics. I think that people did what was practical in different ages, and the Vedic concern was more the ethics of it rather than the technical details of economics. So, <laughs> so uh, Claire had written, so, uh, it's working, start talking. That was funny. Anyways, yeah, let's talk now. Okay. So that was usury. Then she said, um, how would Vedic economics work better than a capitalist or communist economy? First of all, communist economies don't work. So, uh, <laughs> so we're talking about economies that do work. Uh, Although I once said something which kind of became uh, popular in ISKCON, 
and was attributed to, you know, Shastra or to Prabhupada, but I think I originally said it. And that is that uh, in the, in the um, Varna system, you have uh, Brahmins who basically just sort of live freely and their economic system is just they receive gifts from other people and for, for their, their service. And you have uh, kings who, who tax the population, who acquire and uh, store wealth. Because if you know that famous story in the Bible, Joseph and the coat of many colors, a story which it's from the Old Testament. Somehow it's, it was, um, it's one of the practically the main story in the Quran also. They somehow really fixated on the Joseph story. But in this story, Joseph had a dream. I'm sorry, the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh had a dream where he saw there were five or uh, seven, I think, seven fat, healthy cows, and then seven lean cows devoured them or something. And Joseph interpreted the Pharaoh's dream. There will be seven uh, years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, drought, and so... Uh, Egypt has to store up all the grains, and, and apparently other places in the world were, were suffering from famine and, and, and deprivation, and Egypt was living well. In fact, that's why the father and brothers of Joseph actually came to Egypt, because that's where he could get food. So in any case, the king taxes the people, you know, the taxes include grains. These things are stored and used sort of as, as insurance against crop failures. Or, and so the king had a certain economy based on taxation. Also, and they would fight battles. If they won, there would be a lot of, I guess the crude word would be booty. But they would, I mean, if you won a battle, uh, you made a lot of money on it. <clears throat> and then there were Vaishas who Krishna says they are, uh, Krishna said Vaishas are, uh, they do Krishi Goraksha. Krishi means agriculture, uh, Godaksha, keeping cows, and uh, Vanijam, which means commerce. So that's what vice is. But now, is that capitalism? My understanding of capitalism is that it adds something very new and different. It's not just trade, barter, commerce. People have always traded. But the, the notion of capitalism is that all value is translated into sort of a numerical figure, uh, numerical quantity, which is uh, instantiated by things like money, you know, paper currency, coins, and nowadays, I guess, by little digital figures. So that, you know, someone can be an active trader and acquire a fortune, lose a fortune, and never actually touch physical money. But whether it's, whether it's digital, whether it's paper, whether it's coin, whether it's seashells in some simple societies, the idea that all value, including the value of human beings, everything is abstracted into some kind of capital, and then people trade capital. So you don't just go to the market, let's say, and trade, you, you know, you produce some cotton or wool and you trade it for some tangerines or something, but you have capital and the capital is traded and people buy things and so on. So capitalism is typical of industrial societies.
or industrialized societies, post-industrial. And since the Vedic culture was agrarian, uh, I don't think we could say they were capitalists. And uh, you could say Shudras kind of had a, co a communist situation for the workers because they would be taken care of. They would do their work and they would be taken care of. So uh, Vedic culture was not defined by an economic system as our cultures are. So you talk about capitalism or communism where you had this, it's kind of sick really, but you had during the Cold War, you had this great struggle where the world was divided and you know this and and both sides had nuclear weapons still do and and both sides were defined by economic theories which tells you right there kind of how fallen society was so the very notion that you define a whole civilization by its economic theory is something very new i believe so we're not gonna find it in ancient Vedic culture or Egyptian culture or Greco-Roman culture or Persian, or you're gonna have to look high and low. That's that's kind of a modern industrial and post-industrial phenomenon. We, we can focus on the questions later on and get to the meat okay. of the discussion. Thanks, Claire. Any questions will come up. Yeah, I just found her questions really interesting. So the, the capitalism thing is interesting. I think we can discuss some problems that if you, if you attach a monetary value to something, you run into problems. That There's one theory in economics called marginal utility. So, you know, water, for instance, for example, is very cheap, even though it's absolutely necessary to survive, whereas something else might be uh, very expensive, which is, is just kind of a luxury and not really needed. And the way economists explain this is marginal utility that, you know, when you've already got water, then having another liter of water doesn't really add any value to your life. So I think when we have put a dollar value on everything, we can get mixed signals as to what we actually value. So a company can externalize costs and for them, it's just dollars in their bank account. They, they externalize costs, they pollute the river, they, you know, exploit the workers or whatever they do and externalize all these costs. And because they're just thinking about dollars in their bank account, it doesn't, they're not really considering, you know, the, the greater implications of their actions. And well, well, uh, one way I... Yeah, yeah, that's one of the main points I wanted to make actually, if I can jump in. And that is, I yeah. don't, I don't think we can really understand economic systems or, I mean, we can, we can study them, but I, I think as far as, uh, if I could just sneak in another Claire thing here, yeah. where she said, you know, how would Vedic e economics work? I think that capitalism, first of all, if you had a culture that took very seriously other values, you wouldn't call the society capitalist. So that, um, in other words, like the example you gave, you, you gave the example where sort of a typical cutthroat exploitative capitalist. But the point is, if, if you had higher principles, if you had principles of um, what we would call Brahminical principles or spiritual principles, then obviously you would not have unfettered uh, capitalism because there would be other values other than capital. There would be the value, for example, you would have in, in terms of legal philosophy, you would have positive rights and not just negative rights. Uh, the people on the far right now, or, or, or I don't know what they consider themselves far right, but who I think are probably world champions for hypocrisy at the present time, 
in 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 this of course competing giga strong strong challenge in the far left for you know who's the biggest hypocrite but anyway on the far right one of their arguments is that if you look at the u.s constitution or the bill of rights especially then it it's preserving protecting negative rights not positive rights and legal terminology that means a negative right is your right to not have something bad happen to you like the right to not be assaulted the right to not be raped the right to not be burglarized and so on and so forth and there are positive rights for example the right to medical care the right to a good education now from our point of view and if we can use the term vedic which is anyway if we want to go with that term for now a little problematic that term but let's go with it for now um then the vedic culture very much defends people's positive rights in fact their statements the king and queen are like the father and mother of the people just like you know a parent has to feed their child and similarly the king and queen are responsible to see that the people have a good life and so if you have this notion which is found in i would say civilized societies or, or among civilized people, as opposed to some people, religious people on the far right, ironically enough, uh, if you recognize positive rights, then you can't just have capitalism. Because capitalism is kind of winner take all. Capitalism only tells you that you have a right to bring something to the market, whether it's a digital marketplace or whatever it is, or a big box store. You bring services and products to market, if people who want those services and products give you something of value that you consider to be a value. And if it turns out at the end of the day that a whole lot of people are dirt poor and a few people are fabulously wealthy, that's just the way the game goes. It's like if you have a soccer match and it turns out that, you know, one team wins, you know, 15 to nothing, that's just the way the game went. Sorry. So that's not Vedic culture at all. Because if you just have capitalism, you don't get positive rights. Positive rights is the idea that people have a right to certain benefits in life, not simply by trading for them or fighting for them in the marketplace, but because they're human beings that do their duty. And therefore they have a right to these things. So, so the capitalism has to be modified conditioned by, restricted by all kinds of other moral considerations, which ultimately come from a spiritual worldview. That ties into a point I like to make about how in Vedic culture, there's multiple different values that are considered, you know, like Artha and Dharma would be the ones relevant here. Artha means wealth and Dharma means religious principles or values or whatever. And when you when you have two of those, then you've you're like the the market considerations can create one constraint, right? Like if you're selling potatoes, you can't, or you know, like if you're producing a product, you can't just produce it in a really inefficient way because you'll get beaten in the marketplace by someone else. So you've got market constraints, which uh, make mean that we have. Thomas Sowell defines economics as the allocation of scarce resources which have uh, alternative uses. So yeah, to some extent, you need market forces to do that. But then you also need a consideration of Dharma to make it so we're not polluting the river and, you know, we're actually caring for people exactly. and the people yeah. you're employing yeah. and taking care of. 
And then if we go to the third one, Kama, which people fulfill, they're kind of like their physical desires or their whatever, their emotional wishes. The point is you can't get to Kama, wish fulfillment. Kama means wish or desire. You can't get to wish fulfillment, whether it's physical or you know mental or whatever, unless you've done both Dharma and Artha. Now, what we have, let's say in America, is, I mean, obviously you have some dharma. You, you, you cannot, you know, just break into a bank and take all the money. You can't just, you know, rob people. You can't just, or, or you can't fulfill your physical desires just by raping people you consider to be desirable sex objects. So there is a sense that artha, which ultimately facilitates kama, that the accumulation of wealth facilitates uh, wish fulfillment, including physical wish fulfillment or whatever, that it has to be constrained by dharma. So the principle is there. It's not that modern countries go to the opposite extreme, but the problem is that their understanding of dharma is weak and deficient, and therefore capitalism is uh, not, it, it, it's like if you have a pet tiger at home and you just sort of let it roam the neighborhood, that's not okay. You can say, well, I don't let it go outside the neighborhood, so it only eats my neighbors, but doesn't eat other people. So I, th I think I think we want to talk about anything Vedic. You talk about a healthy balance between Dharma and Artha. Now you can go too far on the Dharma side where people are so religious, they just, they they kind of force the whole society into a type of artificial poverty. And then you can go too far on the Artha side and you just get a, you know, a sort of a dog-eat-dog -dog society. So when you get Dharma and Artha in balance, then the Kama, the, you know, fulfilling your desires, including bodily desires, uh, it can be done in a way which doesn't ultimately undermine society. There's a George Soros quote to, to illustrate a related point that um, when it's, you know, modern businessmen, they, they and to some extent, at least some of them, they pride themselves on, you know, taking as much booty home as they possibly can without breaking any of the rules. And there's no moral consideration. So George Soros said, as an anonymous participant in financial markets, I never had to weigh the social consequences of my actions. I felt justified in ignoring them on the grounds that I was playing by the rules. Well, that's what the that's what German people in, in did under Hitler. Because it was legal to go to a Jewish shop and smash all the windows. It was legal to report Jewish people who were hiding to the German authorities. So they were playing by the rules. And so to play by the rules, but to give no thought to whether the rules are fair or moral is just to be an animal. Animals play by the rules. If you if you study, you know, I don't know what they call it zoology. If you study animal behavior, there's lots of rules. It, it, you know, animal life or, or fish life, I mean, it's very much birds, it's governed by rules. So just to play by the rules with no further consideration is basically to be an animal as opposed to a human. It's to be a, a, a stupid animal. Well, what we could also say is that when the society is, is cultured, 
then playing by the rules of that society is a high class culture? Um, if the rules are fair and just. For so, like, if we lived, if we lived yeah. in a Vedic culture and you played by the rules of that culture, then you'd be an exemplary human being. Yes, if you lived, but again, Vedic, it's like you know, there's Vedic and more Vedic and less Vedic. It's like if you look at the history, say in the Mahabharata, which is the longest sustained history we have of ancient India. Uh, you know, if you mean Vedic, the people dress a certain way. Of course, that would be absurd. If you mean that they had the four varnas, you know, uh, teachers, teacher priests, uh, rulers, uh, you know, merchants and farmers, and then workers, and then people were either uh, celibate students or married or retiring couples who had raised their children or, or renounced people. So, I mean, the, um, the Bhagavatam itself regularly warns us of the peril of thinking that if you just follow Varnashram, which is really at the heart of quote-unquote Vedic culture, the Varnashram system is in the Vedas. It's like there's nothing more quote-unquote Vedic than the Varnashram system, and yet you can be carefully following the Varnashram system, and according to the Bhagavatam, you can be like an animal. And basically, you're wasting your life. So um, there's so when you say Vedic, I, I think we'd have to add something more to Vedic. You could say, well, let's say a Varnashram society that's just selfish and materialistic. It's not really Vedic. But then again, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that the Vedic culture is materialistic. I mean, of course, Prabhupada uses it in a different way. But Krishna says, Chaigunya Bishaya Veda. The Vedas deal with materialism, material life. Nis Chaigunya Bavarjuna, rise above this. So we can use the adjective Vedic, but we have to remember that a, a huge part of the Vedas is materialistic. Someone's going to complain about the caste system and how can you condone the caste system and look at all the horrors in India in recent years because of the caste system. Well, first of all, we wouldn't condone that caste system. So who's condoning it? Krishna doesn't condone it. That's why, you see, you can't... I think a society ultimately has to be characterized by its moral position that it actually lives by, not lofty principles that no one follows. So I don't think, so it gets into the question, under what conditions are you justified in calling a society Vedic? Because again, Krishna says that um, he talks about people being not really understanding, being ignorant and Vedic. You know, performing the Vedic sacrifices, going up to material heaven, coming back, the flowery words of the Vedas, Jamimang Pushpitang Vacham. So I think we, you know, we throw the word Vedic around as if there's one thing, which is Vedic culture, and there's not. Not I mean, the economies change in different yugas. The economies, the, the economic system changes between yugas. All kinds of things change, and 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 you know, ethically or spiritually, 
so-called Vedic culture definitely has boom-bust cycles. And so, so, you know, we tend to have this kind of this almost like this fairy tale version of Vedic culture as opposed to looking at real history as it's found, for example, even in the Mahabharata. For example, we have this rosy picture that, um, you know, Brahmins, the, the priest teachers and the Kshatriyas, the warrior governors, they have this, you know, wonderful, to use the cliche word, symbiotic relationship. And the Brahmins were blessing the kings and guiding them and the kings were worshiping the Brahmins. Yeah, that's what they did when they weren't killing each other. And I mean, most of the time they weren't killing each other, but sometimes they were. For example, in the Mahabharata, in the story of Orva, where the, the warrior kings uh, massacred Brahmins. And then you have Parashuram, a Brahmin who massacres the warrior. So again, there were good times and there were bad times. If we want to talk about Vedic culture as an ideal system, which we should, because you have to have ideals. You have to have ideals, even though you often don't reach them, but you have to have ideals. Otherwise, you don't know what direction you're going in. And you have no way of evaluating. So if you want to talk about Vedic culture when it's really humming along, when it's really working, yeah, I'd say it's the best possible system. So I've got this quote from Thomas Sowell related to the point of, you know, having a good society structure and values and whatnot. Um, like there's, there was a book written in, about called The Forgotten Depression. And uh, I can't remember the name of the president in America at the time, but in 1921, there was a depression that everyone forgot about and the government did nothing about it other than uh, reducing spending because there was less taxes coming in because people were earning less money. And, and, and uh, unemployment was 12%. The following year, it was 6%, despite the fact that the government did nothing. Um, so people complain about this idea that the government should do nothing. Uh, and the complaint, where the government restricts its economic role... To, can I reach, I'll just read the quote and then you can comment. Sure. Where the government restricts its role to that of an uh, enforcer of laws and constraints, some people say that such a policy amounts to doing nothing as far as the economy is concerned. However, what is called doing nothing has often taken centuries to achieve, namely a reliable framework of laws within which economic activity can flourish and without which even vast amounts of rich natural resources may fail to be developed into a corresponding level of output and resulting prosperity. Yeah, the first thing that occurs to me is that, well, first of all, I'm suspicious of his argument for the simple reason that if you look at 1921, we're talking about, uh, let's say, America in the almost immediate aftermath of two really, you could say, catastrophic events. One was World War I. And you could say, well, America got in the war at the end, you know, Yankee Doodle Dandy's kind of, everybody else is exhausted and the Americans came and, hi, where's the battlefield? So... But the point is, by the, by the time you get to that period in history, around 1920, America is very much, uh, the American economy is very much involved in world trade. And of course, most of that trade would have been with Europe. And because Europe was exhausted by World War I, that must have affected American trade. 
And because Europe had all these colonies, if Europe was drained, their colonies would have been drained. And so a, a, a dramatic decrease in, in, in demand for American products around the world must have affected the economy. And secondly, just right at toward the end of World War I, there was this terrible outbreak of Spanish flu. And that decimated the workforce. So by the time you get to 1921, the, all these things kick in. You don't have a war economy, which artificially jacks up the economy. And so the fact that things kind of crumbled down. But what happened is that, um, you know, as Europe started to rebuild, as Europe started to rebuild and as, you know, they got past the Spanish flu, uh, then the economy started to come back. So to say that, to use the depression of 1921 as an example and, and to argue that, hey, everybody, you don't have to do anything during depressions. All you got to do is just make sure people follow the law, don't shoplift and pay their taxes and economies will just bounce back. And uh, I'm not sure that was, in, in fact, interestingly, as far as I know, I think it was Herbert Hoover. Let me just check that real quick. Uh, President of the United States. Uh, that's exactly what he tried to do during the depression. He actually followed Thomas Sowell's advice. Although Thomas Sowell wasn't, you know, around there advising anybody, but as far as I know, and you know, maybe someone that knows more could. He basically tried that, and it didn't work, and and you know, and people were starving, and then Roosevelt came in and said, "We're we're not going to do it that way. We're going to have very active government intervention." And of course, people could say, "Well, what really got the American economy back was, you know, World War II, and so on and so forth." But it seems to me that Thomas Sowell. I don't know because I haven't read his book, so maybe I'm being unfair to him, but I strongly suspect he has quite a simplistic view of history. And I know that different historical periods are very different. And to say that, hey, it worked in 1921, it'll always work. Uh, I would be very suspicious of that. Uh, I think those are fair points. I mean, I, I read the, the, these books and then, you know, I read the books on giving the opposing arguments. You always find both good points on both sides of the aisle. So I think the truth is generally somewhere in between. Yeah, Thomas Sowell, I mean, I have learned over time to be suspicious of people that have extreme views on either side. Yeah, and, exactly. <laughs> and, and life tends to kind of straddle the divide and you never find truth on this side and that side. Well, anything that's a genuine left-right debate, then like both sides generally have value to offer. Some debates are actually just good ideas versus bad ideas, but that's very rare. Yeah. And, and I think if someone on the left was intellectually honest and not a fool, they would recognize very important good things on the right and vice versa. The right would recognize good because the left tends to emphasize taking care of neglected people, needy people, and the right tends to emphasize hierarchy and freedom. And and uh, the truth, it really is in the middle. Like Thomas Sowell goes on to give more arguments for his point about the importance of government structure and enforcing laws and whatnot, which is that in 
poverty-stricken countries, often you'll find that they've got tons of natural resources. Like Australia is rich in natural resources, but countries will invest big money there in order to extract those resources so the country becomes rich. But some countries in South Africa, there's so much corruption that nobody will will put pour money into the country in order to try to pull that wealth out because yeah, they're too worried yeah, the government that, will steal it from them. No, no, that's a general feature of third world countries. I've often said, because I worked in Latin America so much, I lived there for so long, the poverty in Latin America is absolutely a cultural phenomenon. It's because it's because you have low levels of education, which means you have low levels of public scrutiny, scrutiny of government action, which means very high levels of government theft and just, you know, they're just acting like total creeps. And it's just corruption. And uh, yeah, the, the, the poverty you know, I mean, let's say you're in some country where there's just like, uh, I don't know, you repeated like some super, like some natural disaster or something. But I would say most of the poverty I've seen in third world countries is all cultural. So Thomas Sowell makes the point about government corruption and, and you're you're agreeing with that, but going a step layer and say a step a layer deeper and saying what's actually causing the corruption in the government is a lack of education in the population. Yeah, and it's kind of they... yeah. The government doesn't spend on education because corrupt governments don't want an educated populace. Right, and that's why we find that even in America, where that person whose name I won't mention, the former president, uh, appealed not exclusively, but a lot to uneducated white people, not exclusively, obviously, but a lot. He sort of activated those people. And uh, in, in the last election, one of the reasons he lost is because he started to lose, especially like, let's say, like suburban women who tend to be educated, and he lost them. So, um, yeah, so again, it gets back to the, one of my main points is that it's really an ethical thing. You know, you could have capitalism, you could have, I don't know, you know, what are the, I mean, communism is just, is just a bit silly because it's based on a terribly outdated anthropology. In other words, a concept of human nature and it, it justifies genocide among other things. So, you know, maybe I shouldn't even get started on Marxism. Oh, what what is it in in capitalism? If you you starve, if you don't work, but on communism, you just starve. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so capitalism. I mean, you see, if by capitalism you mean you mean free market economy, Vedic culture was a free market economy, but it wasn't capitalism in the sense that it wasn't an ideology to reduce everything to some numeric value represented by money or other financial instruments and then to trade and barter these instruments as opposed to real goods. And we see capitalism becomes especially dangerous when you have um, a low ethical standard, when you have corrupt governments and greedy populace, when you don't have strong spiritual principles. I mean, the fact that people claiming to be Christians, claiming to follow Jesus of Nazareth, and they fought to the death to, to prevent pe people from having health care. 
I mean, there's anything that Jesus would support. It's the right of every human being to healthcare. And so the fact that someone could claim to be a Christian and fight against universal health care is one of the great wonders of our times. Um, so one, one problem you get with economics and socializing thing is you get a concentration of power. I mean, obviously, having free health care has, has performed far better than any other system that's been tried in, to modern, in modern day. Um, but you can see that problem in other things. So how, in Vedic societies, I don't think you see heavy concentrations of power. I think it's oh, local right. government. Well, yeah, for example, for example, if you study pre-industrial England, what you find is that in every community or village or farming you know, community, there was what they called the squire. And the squire was basically the richest guy in the area. And it was his responsibility with his wife, of course, to make sure that no one starved. And you find this very strongly in the novels of Jane Austen. So she's describing a world which existed let's say about 220 years ago, roughly. And England is still largely, it's not industrialized everywhere. The old country system, uh, land system is still there, although it's, it's definitely been eroded. But in that system, what you find is in her novels, and she was considered in her time to be kind of like, not shockingly, but startlingly, realistic. So she was considered by her contemporaries to be a very realistic writer, which should increase our confidence in, in the accuracy of what she's describing. And so you find that the richest family in an area, community, a village, was personally responsible to bring food to anyone that needed it. You find this time and time again in Emma, you find Emma personally bringing food to the poor families and her father is the richest guy in the area. In, uh, in Pride and Prejudice, uh, the heroine Lizzie Bennett begins to understand that Darcy is really a good guy because, you know, she finds out how he treats the poor people and how he treats the laboring class. And she finds out that he's generous and charitable. And uh, it, it, it's, it's just something that just occurs over and over again, that these wealthy families, that was the social security net. And so when you have all this uh, sudden displacement where everyone's moving to the cities with the rapid industrialization and urbanization of the world, then you have a period which is very, which is very poignantly described by say Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens is writing you know, a generation or two after Jane Austen, remember a generation and a half after Jane Austen, and England has become much more industrialized. And London has grown a lot. And what happened is people still have the old culture of the squire in the village. And so you have everyone moving to the city, but there's no such thing as a social welfare department. There's no such thing as government programs. They've never existed. And so therefore you get all these people in the city who have no safety net and they just fall and they starve. 
And and that's, you know, you read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And then at the same time that's happening, you have this new philosophy, which is very popular, which later eventually came to be called Darwinism, which is survival of the fittest, which, I mean, he wasn't the first one, but survival of the fittest, which means, uh, and then the Malthus also, that if the poor people are starving, it's natural. That's nature's way of improving humanity. It's survival of the fittest. It makes a robust human population. And you directly find this enunciated in, in A Christmas Carol where uh, some beneficent gentlemen are going around asking for charity for the poor and Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, who's quite wealthy, refused to give anything. And they can't believe it. And they say, well, could you? did you mean you want to give later? And he says, no. And they say, well, people are starving. He said, well, let them starve. As this Scrooge said, let them starve. It will reduce the excess population. And, 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 and so you have this rapid urbanization, and then you have this new philosophy, survival of the fittest, because everything is capitalism and competition, and competition is good. Darwin showed that. That's what makes any species strong, survival of the fittest. And there's no social welfare system because no one had ever thought of it. The government would do that. And you get all these horrible situations. And finally, as urban life and capitalism starts to become the norm, you have all these social movements, which Dickens inspired a lot himself, to raise the standards of the poor. So, so you have to look at the whole system, uh, you know, the whole history to, to find out what's happening and the transition from the, I mean, it was horrible. For example, I mean, Marx, we'll talk about Marx again in a second, but I mean, coal miners, it's just, it's, it's, it's almost unbearable to hear about it. When, when some coal miners had to, you know, because when you're digging for coal in North England, you have to keep digging further and further to, you know, keep getting coal. And, and the mine shafts are very low. So the miners, they would have to walk at least a mile sometimes in the morning, bent over, stooped over. Walk a mile like that. I mean, no chiropractors. <laughs> so they're walking a mile, stooped over, then a mile back. They're breathing in coal fumes. It was like, it was, it, it, it was like an assassination program. It was just like, you know, it's like how to kill and mutilate people. And Marx saw that, but but then finally sort of human decency caught up and they started passing laws and having social welfare programs. But here's the point I want to make about economy. And I think this is a great point. And it kind of sums up a lot of what we're talking about. In that situation I've just described, there were two men living in the same city at the same time, concerned about that same problem, and they came up with very different solutions. One of the men came up with solutions which probably caused more human atrocity than anyone else in history had ever caused. And the other man had a solution which only did good. So the one man whose solution caused the killing of 10 to 20 times more people than Hitler was Karl Marx. 
and the other guy living in the same city at the same time, concerned about the same problems, is Charles Dickens. And what Dickens is advocating in so many of his books is generosity. You could say nowadays that would be considered conservative. I mean, he does, he's not, he wants government programs also, but he wants human decency, human generosity, be real Christians. Don't be hypocrites like these, you know, some of these American right-wing people. And so, but again, Dickens is not advocating an economic system. He's advocating a moral system. And he changed. I mean, there's a lot of change. For example, look at um, another example of an author who had a very heavy influence in England for roughly the same time, or almost exactly the same time, was Charlotte Bronte in her book, Jane Eyre. Because Jane herself, Jane Eyre, this, you know, one of the great English novels of all time, she's sent to this horrible school for poor, for poor girls in which, you know, you're lucky if you survive. And actually there's an, a, there's a, uh, an outbreak of a, a uh, epidemic there at the school and, and Jane's best friend dies, a girl. And, J and, and Charlotte Bronte, the author, she had two sisters who actually died in that school. I mean, she changed the name for her, but, but, and so as a result of that book, there was a movement in England to stop this nonsense of girls being sent, orphan girls being sent to these terrible schools. And you have Dickens talking about terrible schools. You have Dickens and um, what's that? Um, oh my God, what's the name of that book? It's a Nicholas Nickleby, where he talks about these horrible demonic schools where the children are exploited. So, so again, it was appeals to morality. It was appeals. And, and so you find these people on the right in America and other places where they're against all this government charity, but they're not in the front lines fighting for decency and generosity, private generosity to the poor. They're not, at least, you don't read about it. So again, I think starting with an economic system is sort of going asana backwards, so to speak. I think you have to start with legitimate ethical principles grounded in spiritual understanding there will all you all you have to have free trade without free trade you you'll just starve as we see in north korea and even they trade but so you have to have free trade there has to be an incentive for people to accumulate wealth otherwise you just starve but there has to be an overarching ethical system, spiritually grounded. So, so therefore, I, th I think the idea that let's talk about economics is is kind of putting the cart before the horse. Hey, uh, <laughs> I was debating economics better than Islam. I don't know if there is such a thing as Islamic economics. The, the Muslims were huge slave traders. And by the way, slavery was abolished in... Africa, half a century later than in America. Interesting little fact. Uh, what have Dickens and Bronte to do with Vedic economics? Everything, because there's no such thing as Vedic economics. There's just efficient production of resources 
governed by ethical principles. So the ethical principles are what really governs it. I think there's something to be said about how society's structured or, or the situations which people are in which, which bring out certain ethical or unethical behavior. So it, it, often the same person in a different situation will behave very differently from an ethical perspective. And if we set up society in such a way that we're encouraging unethical behavior, then it's not that great to just turn around and be like, oh, well, the people just need to behave better. I think that environment is a big factor. Oh, no, no. That, I'm, I'm not talking about just giving some free advice. Yeah, society should be nice. I'm talking about a society where the niceness is built in to the structure of the society. It's built in. It's structural. Because people left to their own devices will often be selfish. And that's the big flaw in uh, conservative economics. Interestingly, these hard right, laissez-faire capitalists make the same terrible blunder as Karl Marx. You know, Karl Marx is like the devil for them, Lucifer. And yet they make the exact same mistake because they're both foolish in the same way. The, the big foolishness, blunder of Marx, you know, in describing uh, his, you know, sort of communist paradise, which never actually happens. And that's why in, in for Marx, there's three stages dialectically. You know, the first stage is uh, where we are now, capitalism, you know, boo. And, and then you've got to have what he calls the dictatorship of the proletariat because the capitalists won't go quietly. So therefore, you need to impose a dictatorship of the proletariat, which gradually gives way to communist paradise. Well, since communist paradise is based on an absurdly unscientific view of human psychology and human nature, you never get the communist paradise. You get stuck in the dictatorship. And that's why every communist country comes to rest in brutal dictatorship. But in any case, so Marx believes that people will just do the right thing. They'll just do the right thing. And the conservative capitalists make the same stupid mistake, that people will just do the right thing. You don't need government welfare programs. People will just do the right thing. And they're both wrong. So, I mean, how ironic that these two mortal enemies, Marx and the laissez-faire capitalists, make exactly the same mistake in having this foolishly Pollyannish view of human nature. So therefore you have to build the decency into the system. I've, I've got this quote from Frederick Bastiat, which is related to that, the French economist. If the natural tendencies of mankind are so bad that it is not safe to permit people to be free, how is it that the tendencies of these organizers are always good? Do not the legislators and their appointed agents also belong to the human race? Or do they believe that they themselves are made of a finer clay than the rest of mankind? Okay, the answer to that gentleman, Monsieur, I forgot his name. Bastiat. Bastia, the answer is this. First, first, you have to ask a question. Historically, what social or cultural force tends to produce in human beings ethical behavior? And, and the answer is, as history shows and research shows, 
uh, genuine spirituality, not fanatical religion where God wants us to murder all the enemies of Jesus or Allah or whatever, you know, not murderous religious fanaticism, but genuine spirituality. And I mean, even today in America, studies show that religious people tend to be more charitable, have better marriages, uh, and, and and so on and so forth. So, um, so it's not just, I think the whole problem is the impersonalism of trusting your fate to systems. Because as we know, human beings can easily and quickly corrupt any system. So systems won't save us. Systems, good systems in the hands of good, spiritually inspired people. That I think is the formula. So there's no substitute for quality of character and the people. Absolutely not. Any system on earth can be corrupted in about 15 seconds. And every system on earth has been corrupted. For example, I know in Latin America, if you read their constitutions, they're brilliant. I mean, they're very intelligent and they're very well thought out and no one follows it. So, yeah, there's no substitute. You need good people. I would say good and educated people. Good, educated people making good laws and inspiring the society in general to follow them. Perhaps the opposite is also true, though. You, you could take very high-quality people and put them in a system which brings out the worst in them and you'll get bad results. Uh, I think like, what would be a bad system? I mean, if you have a system that makes it illegal to give charity or makes it illegal to, let's say, to um, work toward more equitable wealth distribution so that a few people don't get most of the wealth and everybody else gets, you know, struggling. So if you have a system, first of all, if you had good people taking power whether they take it democratically or monarchically or whatever, then you're not going to have a really bad system because they're going to amend abusive laws. Well, I mean, if you have someone who's like absolutely a perfect moral character, then, you know, perhaps there's no situation where anything bad would, would come out of them. But if you have people that are more or less good people, but they've got some human frailty, and then you put them in a situation where they've got absolute power and nobody's watching them, you know, they, they yeah, people yeah, offering but, them bribe. But absolute power with nobody watching them is not the Vedic system. They, but they, I just mean, you, you need some kind, the system also matters, yeah, not just the people, people, that's my point. But if people, generally good people don't, grasp at absolute power with nobody watching them because if someone was a good person and some people are watching them and saying hey that's not good you're not going to cut their head off if you're a good person so how could a good person systematically suppress legitimate criticism um yeah, I mean, I suppose so. But you, you, can, you can imagine a situation where a person would be like, you know, like, you know, for example, you know, at work, like I, I can put down hours and nobody's actually seen me do the job. So I just put down another hour, right? Like you can imagine that situation. But if you know, like sooner or later, somebody will find out, then you'll just be like, oh, I, w I won't do that. And, you know, if you're in government, you know, nobody's watching them. But, but I mean, absolute absolutism is never a good idea. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, that's why Prabhupada created a system of checks and balances in ISKCON. And, and the Vedic system, you have the two most powerful Varnas balance each other. So, so physical, military, and economic power is given to one group. Moral and spiritual authority is given to another group. And group. In fact, to be perfectly honest, I think that's one of the problems in ISKCON. That, <laughs> that, that ISKCON does not, in a sense, really instantiate the system that Krishna gave us. Where spiritual authority and worldly authority, temporal authority, to use that, you know, Christian term, they're not, they don't balance each other. So you can have, let's say, someone who's a GBC in ISKCON, which means he has authority for his own, and he's also the guru. So you get situations with someone using all the power of a guru, like I can't, you know, I can't save myself unless my guru's pleased, but the guru's also the manager. And therefore, to save your soul, you have to follow perhaps some flawed managerial policy. And, and, right. And, and there have been many problems with that. So I think, I think one, you know, probably gave us GBC system. I'm not saying we should abolish it. I'm just saying, though, that we should at least intelligently open our eyes to the fact that in ISKCON, we have a system of power, not always, but in many cases, which sort of dissolves the balance of power created by Krishna. Because he says, Chapter Varnya Mayasrishtam, by me, this system of four Varnas was created. So what should be done? You know, you have to think about it. I'm just saying, though, it's, it's something to think about. So, so would you agree that, you know, this person who's a guru and simultaneously a GVC might be, you know, a really good person, spiritually advanced and all that, but the situation they're in doesn't bring out the ideal managerial situation, well, I would say despite the situation, their good character. I would say the situation may bring out certain controlling tendencies. And that same person in a different situation might be like perfectly upstanding in every way. Uh, they might be forced, they might be forced to be so. It's a, uh, it's uh, but again, and, and of course, some gurus and GBCs are you know not like that. They're sort of humble and almost get involved too little in certain managerial things. So it, there's all kinds of things going on. But and I'm, I don't mean to criticize others. I'm just saying though that in these different situations, I think that if a person was really spiritually advanced, they themselves would see the evils. I mean, they would see that they've ruined certain lives by using guru authority to impose administrative policy. And how some, yeah, people, right. and how some people have been damaged by that. And I think if, if someone who has all those powers doesn't notice it, uh, they may not be paying attention. So a, a sufficiently spiritually advanced person will create the spiritual system. Like uh, Yudhishthira said, the path is hidden in the heart of the pure devotee. Well, but that maybe means that, you know, the, the, the spiritual path. But I think that balance of power, I mean, in a sense, if you take the GBC, as, as Prabhupada said, the ultimate managing authority, and then you have gurus, but then you have gurus who are also the ultimate managers. And... 
I think ultimately it's it's just something we have to think about. It's much healthier to be aware of problems and potential problems rather than just, you know, as to give the old image, uh, putting your head in the sand. Well, I mean, the old idea that it's a conflict, someone with a conflict of vision shouldn't be making a decision goes back really far and is found in virtually every culture, right? Like, you know, dear Gurudev, what, what service should I do? Oh, I, I need someone in, in, you know, this country over there. Uh, I think the best thing for your spiritual life is for you to move to this country over there where I, I managerially need somebody, right? <laughs> hey, Claire said, I sense the men talking at me. Oh my God, I don't know. I don't know you well enough really to be talking <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe we can, we can move on to my analogy to pharmaceuticals. Oh, pharmaceuticals. Yeah, that's... Uh... So, uh, as, as we know, pharmaceuticals, they're great. You know, they save lives. They've got so many benefits, but they also have side effects. And often somebody, you know, with will end up on a cocktail of pharmaceuticals because you know, the, the complications of how they work and the side effects that come, you know, the, here's your anti-nausea medicine to treat the nausea that you're getting from your, you know, anti-pain medicine and so on. And I think that th this could be analogous to an economy. Like you were saying, you're making a case that the government should intervene somewhat. You know, you were disagreeing with Thomas Sowell and that may well be, for example, you know, a, a fever prevents uh, as how your body fights off the virus. But if somebody's temperature goes too hot, then you need to bring it down or they'll die, right? So similarly, if people are starving. My general opinion tends to be that big farm in some ways is evil. I think that they won't hesitate to kill people to make money. I mean, I, I think that's obvious. And I've even what, what they do is, I've seen this, that let's say they have a, a drug, they come out with a drug and they know it has some flaw and that flaw will cause some people to die. And so they're, you know, they have an accounting department that calculates, okay, we will be sued. Well, you know, based on history, we'll have to pay so much in damages, but we'll make so much profit, better to kill the people and come out with the drug. So I haven't studied it enough, so I can't guarantee any listener that I really know what I'm talking about. But my impression is that there are some truly evil people in big farm. And uh, the pharmaceutical industry and the prices they charge and so on and so forth. So I think that uh, pharmaceuticals has to be a regulated industry. We also know that um, that government regulators routinely get paid off. And we also know that scientists are bought, you know, they're, they're not even that expensive. You know, you give a scientist some money, comes out with a paper showing the benefits of your drug. And then the paper turns out to have all kinds of methodological flaws. So, yeah, when there's a lot of money involved, you tend to get a lot of corruption. And that's, I think, absolutely the case with the pharmaceutical industry. I, I think you might get something uh, analogous to that in economics, too, where, you know, a politician may have certain pressures on them to, to you know, like, for example, the voter base, if... if um, if you fix, you know, the price of wheat drops too low, so you say, okay, we're going to put a, a floor on the price of wheat. We'll make sure it doesn't go below a certain price. So the government buys the wheat, dumps it in the ocean or burns it in order to keep the price to a certain thing. And the farmers are happy. And so they, they make their voter base happy. And then 
people can't afford the wheat because they didn't allow the price to drop low enough to affordable rates and they're bur- destroying some of it so people are actually going hungry. So what do they do? They give people subsidies so they can afford the artificially expensive wheat. Oh, yeah. And so they're, they're the fact, across- Yeah, the fact that government tends to be very corrupt and very stupid, uh, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> actually, someone named at least, probably Josh said experimental vaccines in quotes. <laughs> doesn't have deep faith in vaccines, experimental vaccines, and the economics of risk and liability. Manufacturers pursue immunity from all liability. The experimental COVID-19 treatments doesn't this indicate that their actuaries have calculated that a lot of people would sue for damages. It could also indicate that the possibility that a lot of people would sue for damages. But ultimately, government regulators have to approve the pharmaceuticals. Um, I would say that uh, I, I think one of the big problems is that uh, the creation of the what they call in Spanish Sociedad Anonima, the, the anonymous society, the corporation where or the personería jurídica, somehow I just know these words more from Spanish and Portuguese, but the idea that you have a corporation, the corporation is a legal person. So you sue that person, not the actual humans that run the corporation. So it gives legal immunity to people who can do horrible things. So I, I think the creation, I'm sure there, there are arguments for why we need, uh, you know, corporations to be legal persons that can be sued, not the actual, but I think it's led to an unimaginable amount of evil also i think i think we can solve that by splitting it up i mean you need a limited liability company so that you know if i go and say i'm an electrician i go and start an electrical business and somehow or rather i don't get enough work come in i'm unable to pay my bills and i go under i could lose my house my car and everything if i didn't have limited liability and without that people would just won't invest and they won't do business and you won't get uh, a wealth being produced in society, people yeah, will be more. But, but I, th- I think there is a way to not um, subvert the wheels of industry, and at the same time, uh, stop the evil that's going on by people who just, without care, they couldn't care less. They destroy lives. They kill people. They destroy the environment and then they just, you know, but you can't sue me, sue my company. So I think there has to be a balance because I think there's a tremendous amount of evil going on in the name of limited liability. I think the way you do that is to distinguish financial concerns from ethical concerns. So if I'm just unable to pay my bills because my business didn't go well, that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. I just may have made some bad decisions or the industry may have gone against me. True, true, true. But if we can show that you made decisions in which you knowingly inflicted terrible harm on other people or the environment, animals, you are liable. Like if I'm running a restaurant and it's cheaper to uh, get plastic beads instead of rice and I just feed everyone plastic beads that look like rice, that that should be criminal rather than financial and I should be able to go to jail for that kind of thing. Yeah, or if you release a product, a pharmaceutical product on the market, knowing that um, 
it will cause harm. For example, the, the big lawsuits against the tobacco companies, where you had these rich people knowingly choosing to kill large numbers of people for profit. Now, killing for profit is despicable criminal activity. And that's exactly what these tobacco guys did. They killed in very large numbers for profit. And yet all the penalties were assigned to the companies and not the people who knowingly killed for profit. To me, that is getting pretty close to pure evil. And I think it shows one of the great evils of capitalism that if you kill for profit just by, you know, you're a hired killer, you can go to jail or be executed. But if you kill for profit within a corporation, then there's no penalty. So you can kill for profit, just do it in a business. And uh, my understanding is Vedic society was pretty heavy with the punishment. So in a Vedic society, a Vedic king would, would be pretty brutal to people running these tobacco companies, for example. I mean, just the, the, the example of the tobacco companies shows not that capitalism itself is always evil, but one of the un, just great evils of it, of the, uh, you know, the, corpor the, the corporate person as the object of litigation. It obviously involves just, you know, Hitlerian evil. So back to the uh, pharmaceuticals analogy as with regard to the economy, I, I think, uh, you know, obviously pharmaceuticals have some benefit. We discussed some of the ne negative sides of it, but we often you know, that you're taking one thing to treat another thing and so on. So I think similarly with uh, manipulating the market rather than allowing the free market to work, you, the government can end up creating, you know, manipulating on one side and that, that you know, by not allowing boom-bust cycles to happen, the economy, you know, like you, economists talk about a zombie economy where if, if you don't allow, you know, a bust cycle to happen, then businesses that would have gone bankrupt are still around and they're not using resources inefficiently see, or producing products that people don't want. And I so know, on, whereas... Yeah, but, but the, you see, the problem with that argument is that it, 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 it just talks about extremes, black and white. In other words, laissez-faire capitalism, history has shown, leads to evil. Child labor, uh, you know, just killing people in factories and then just dragging in new people and killing them. So laissez-faire capitalism led to terrible evil. At the same time, you can, as you said, you can obviously overmanage an economy. Like in most things in life, the truth is somewhere in the middle. There's a yeah. way to there's a way to give enough freedom in the marketplace so that people are motivated and enabled to build wealth. Because wealth is something, <laughs> at the same time, you can protect people from the evils of capitalists. And history shows that capitalists tend to do evil things, including killing and maiming people when they're not regulated. 
Uh, sorry, I forgot what I was going to say. Yeah, so obviously the truth somewhere in the middle. We need, we need to, the government. Yeah, that's what it was. The government sometimes may need to step in in order to stop people from starving or stop people from being going, you know, ending up on the street because they can't pay their mortgage or whatever. But it's, uh, generally, what happens, what we've seen in history, is when the government does step in, they never leave. They they continue okay. with their manipulation. Let me think about that. That's that's an interesting point. <laughs> think for a second. Um. They never leave. Should I give an example? Well, well, you no, but but you see, you, that won't make your case. What you have to show is not. I mean, of course, there are examples of that. I'm sure there are. What you have to show is there are no counter examples. I'm not trying to make this black and white. So there, uh, there being no, counter examples so doesn't. So, so if you make the point that there are cases in history where the government intervened and didn't leave and overmanage the economy, of course that must be true. I mean, I wouldn't doubt that for a second. But you see, what it, what you have to show, and I, I think you may not be able to show it, is that that is an inevitable consequence of government intervention. Well, it may be an inevitable consequence under certain democratic systems and economic policies, you know. So, for example, the government comes and puts a, a floor on the price of wheat. And, you know, when that when the policy goes in, not there's, there's not that many people to vote for it, but, you know, it gets in. So getting the policy in is harder. But once it's in, if you want to remove it, there's a whole bunch of people who will go out and vote against you. And any politician who tries to remove something like that has a whole voter base that's going to be against them. So instead, what they'll do is they'll try to keep the voters on their side by clipping the, the floor on the price of wheat and they'll try to try to and win the votes on the other side. That, see, that gets just uh, Josh said a few interesting things. Just want to read laissez-faire capitalism leads to profit over people. Exactly. It's a nice pithy way of saying it. It's a tendency that governments do not release power once they get powers, once they get them. And even when they do release powers, they don't release all of them. Like post-World War II, war times measures were oops. Uh Reduced, but not to pre-war levels. Well, one thing, as far as like pre-war levels, society is becoming more and more complicated with technology, and so you get much larger scale economies. You know, everything is becoming national, international, and so therefore, it seems that you cannot have the level of government regulation for a very simple economy that you would need for an ex a. a you know, 100 times larger and 100 times more complex economy to say so if if let's say you could show that economies basically were sustained at the same level of complexity and size, but government regulation kept increasing, that would make the point. But the counter argument, and I don't know if it's valid, but the counter argument would be that you have a growth of economies and you have a roughly um, corresponding growth, a roughly equal growth in government regulation. If the growth in government regulation roughly matches the growth in the complexity and size of economies, you could argue for that it's not really changing. But when the increase of government regulation begins to dramatically outstrip 
the growth and size and complexity of the economy, then you make your point. And so I don't know if uh, people like Thomas Sowell, if he, if, he, if he does that. By the way, I have about five more minutes because I kind of get All oh, right, yeah, we had a late start. <laughs> Maybe we should leave five minutes for everyone to empty all of their bank accounts and send me their money, you know, because I'm, <laughs> I'm an we'll put, we'll put a pay, <laughs> PayPal link below. Ultimate <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you don't know me, I joke about these things. So, uh, so many right. roads. Here's someone named Chris. So many roads. <clears throat> modern life have a motto of die faster. Yeah. A lot of uh, downsides to the modern world. So, uh, you want to wrap up or? Uh, <laughs> I want to thank you for uh, inviting me. And thank oh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank all the people that participated, and uh, it's nice to be able to spend some time with all of you. Josh Wolf wants to know your Bitcoin address. Actually, I don't deal in Bitcoin. <laughs> I just somehow or other, I'm too old-fashioned. I mean, that, I mean, I mean yeah. That, that's one question. You know, you, you mentioned Vedic economies were more barter. Barter economies are argued to be really inefficient because, you know, if I've got cows and you've got apples, you know, I might only want one apple, but like, <laughs> I don't want to give well, you a whole cow. No, but an answer to that, you know, obviously you trade for either the services of a bull trained or an ox trained to plow or milk. I mean, the point is arguments like that, I think are kind of silly because for thousands and thousands of years, people did have agrarian bartering economies. And there are many, many examples of very rich countries where there was general prosperity. So to say that in agrarian economies, you can't have a prosperous society is just silly because we know that's not true. Well, the argument would be for inefficiency that you'd have more prosperity or at least more convenience uh, or quality of life. Prosperity, but you see, prosperity is something which has to be measured. And we can, for example, I saw this book written, I, said, I don't know, 30 years ago, I can't remember. But someone wrote a book, someone, an author, studied the diaries of young women in America at the time the book was written and 100 years before. And the difference was shocking. Uh, 100 years before, and these were diaries that the, the girls did not expect to be read. And their greatest concern was virtue God, you know, leading a, a, a virtuous, godly life, being good persons. And then they read it in diaries 100 years later. And it was just, you know, it was just garbage, just trash. Just, you know, you know, bubble gum on the brain or just, you know, lust and, and just unmitigated vanity. So if someone's going to make the argument that the more we mechanize and grow economies, the more human beings flourish, that's gonna be a real tough one. Because you, know, you say that you increase prosperity. What is prosperity? And like Prabhupada said, no matter how rich you are, you can't eat more than three or four chapatis. So if you artificially create wants, things that people don't really need, but they think they need, and then you, so basically the modern economy satisfies more efficiently desires 
that were artificially induced. I mean, I would say the basic needs are things like good, healthy food, security, shelter, uh, you know, clothing and, 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 and people that have these things don't expect or desire more than that, you know. So you cannot say that human happiness is increased in general. Uh, that's that's going to be tough to prove. That actually brings up, uh, maybe it can be the last point because you said you need to go, that I wanted to make about uh, efficiency versus quality of life, we could say, or, you know, like scale of economy, you know, uh, Henry Ford produced cars very efficiently because he had one person doing one thing all day long. I but know then that worker. Henry Ford also practically, you know, destroyed the environment, led to a process which is threatening the survival of the planet. So, again, uh, you see, there, there's always a philosophy involved here, a philosophy of human nature. Like if human beings have certain basic, simple things, produce them locally, don't expect or want more, and, and perceive their own lives as being happy, but you come along and say, well, you're not really happy because you don't have a refrigerator and you don't have a car or a motorcycle and you don't have a computer. What about people who live in nature? Actually, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that happiness comes from goodness. Happiness doesn't come from appliances or computers. And so people that live a natural life tend to be much more in the mode of goodness. I've seen studies that show that people that live in the country tend to be more religious, tend to believe in God more. And so if, as we know, you know, the Prabhupada used to quote the British poet Cooper, C-O-W-P-E-R, who said that the city is made by man, the country is made by God. So if people, as studies do show, who are more genuinely pious tend to be happier, they have a more simple life, they're in touch with nature. Uh, if you start to separate efficiency from human happiness and human character and human virtue, then, then it just becomes speed for its own sake, quantity for its own sake, uh, spending for its own sake, and not for the sake of human flourishing and human happiness. So uh, that's the big problem. Anyway, thank you very much, Arjun. Always a pleasure. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Uh, Duvid. Uh, anyway, he made a few comments, but uh, he had more said the Kabbalah. Not much. So thank you all very much. And uh, cool. Thanks for tuning in. We've got lots more discussions coming up, so you can subscribe if you want to see more. Um, I'll put a link to Fridayananda Dasko Swami's website and his YouTube channel you want to hear more and we'll wrap it up <laughs> thanks for tuning in everyone Hare Krishna Hare Krishna